with you here this morning as we turn to Acts chapter 5. Who fills your bucket? Now that sounds like a little bit of a strange question, but let's kind of talk through that a little bit. Back in October of 2017, uh, an Iowa State Patrol officer attempted to pull over a speeding driver. And that driver, instead of pulling over to the side of the road, as you would tend to do in those circumstances, he stepped on the gas and he led multiple troopers on a pursuit that uh, ultimately picked up and uh, turned onto the freeway and uh, eventually lasted for 15 minutes. Finally, one of the officers executed a pit maneuver, as some of you have seen if you've watched many of these sorts of chases on TV, and spun the car around, and the driver came to a stop near an elementary school in Des Moines. That driver was found to be 46-year-old Frederick Jones. And you know, there's a lot of reasons why individuals might run from the police, but in the interrogation that followed that event, the officers actually found a pretty interesting one why Mr. Jones had decided to lead the officers on a chase. As it turns out, this driver told troopers that he wanted to be chased because that was on his bucket list. This is what he had an ambition to do at some point before he died. Are you familiar with that term, this term, the bucket list? Uh, it's, it was actually a term that was made popular a decade ago as Jack Nicholson and Morgan Freeman started a movie titled The Bucket List, titling with that name. And in that movie, the paths of two men cross when they meet at the hospital and they discover that they both actually have terminal lung cancer. One of them has been compiling a list of things that he wants to do before he kicks the bucket. Things that he wants to do before he dies. And that is the bucket list that he then shares with the other who's there with him. Well, as it turns out, the other guy who is facing terminal cancer sees this guy throwing his list away saying, you know, my life is close to an end. And it, and it, and it ha- just so happens that this other guy is a billionaire. And so he takes the list, he adds a few items of it to his own, and they set off on a three-month trot around the globe during which they experience various activities such as skydiving or driving vintage muscle cars around California Speedway and flying over the North Pole, riding motorcycles on the Great Wall of China and attending a lion safari in Tanzania. These are just a sampling of some of the things that were happening on the bucket list of these guys facing terminal cancer in this movie. And in the wake of that movie, it's common to hear individuals describing one thing or another as being on my bucket list. By that, an individual would be saying, that's something that I want to do before I die. And those items can be as mundane as learning how to knit a scarf, or they can be as exotic as hiking in the Himalayas. One man humorously wrote, as I sat there naked in George Clooney's hotel room, I thought to myself, I must have accidentally picked up my wife's bucket list instead of mine. Do you have a bucket list? Uh, It's not necessarily a bad thing to have a bucket list. Have a list of things that you hope to accomplish before you die. The trouble with bucket lists, though, is that none of us truly knows when that bucket of ours is going to be kicked. That is, none of us really knows when it is that we are going to die. And in fact, there was an author who gave the initial inspiration that led to the movie, The Bucket List, whose name was Dave Freeman. And Dave 
uh, co-authored a book titled, A Hundred Things to Do Before You Die. And sadly, Mr. Freeman was only able to do about half of those things. He was only able to mark off about half of those items off of his list before he died at the relatively young age of 47 due to a head injury that he incurred after a fall in his home. And none of those 100 items included, by the way, preparing for the eternity by entrusting your life to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so here's the trouble with bucket lists. To keep with the imagery of keeping, of ultimately kicking the bucket as a form of dying, a bucket list usually don't look to what happens after the bucket gets kicked. They don't consider who controls the bucket or or what he has in store for those who've kicked it. And in today's passage, we find ourselves standing with the apostles before what was essentially the Supreme Court of Israel. They're referred to as the council in our passage. They were also known as the Sanhedrin. They were the individuals, the elders, Uh, 70 plus, 72, who would gather together and would render a verdict in this kind of semicircle elevated around others who were gathered before them to stand trial. And this place, this court, where we're going to find the apostles gathering here in a few moments, is the same place where their Savior, Jesus, had been told by this same court that it was his time to kick the bucket, so to speak, as they condemned him to die on a cross just months earlier. And now these apostles, these whom he has sent, these whom he has called together, who have spent life together with him, who've heard his teaching, who've been there and witnessed his miracles, who've seen him risen from the dead, now they stand in this same place with the danger of facing the same fate as the Lord Jesus. And yet they had a single-track mind or the Savior of mankind. We see that in the way they interact in this situation before the Supreme Court of Israel. It was as if they'd taken their bucket list and they'd handed them over and said, Jesus, you fill this out. You write in the items that I need to do with the rest of my life. They'd come to know him. They'd come to know his love for them. They'd come to know the power of his resurrection from the dead. Now they had entrusted their eternal hopes to him. In the wake of that experience, in the wake of coming to true faith in Christ, it was so evident that come what may, Jesus was the one who was now filling the buckets of these apostles. Gone were the days of saving their skin, plotting a life of luxury, finding forms of entertainment to dwindle away the day no now they lived with a single-minded purpose to do whatever would honor the lord and again it's not necessarily wrong to have a bucket list of things you want to do before you die but i ask you the simple question this morning who fills your bucket when you think of how you want to live your life and what you want to accomplish before you die, what's the driving force behind what you want to do as your life moves forward? If you have a list, how much of it has to do with living for His glory, accomplishing what He's called us to do? 
And even more than that, if you don't have such a list, would you be willing to let God in Christ to create a list for you, dispatching you on mission for Him? Are you open? And would you be willing to let Jesus take control of that list such that your life's ambitions would be to go where He sends you and to do what He tells you for the remainder of your days here on earth? This is not extreme Christianity, as we've talked about here before. This is regular Christianity. To come to Christ means to deny ourselves, to take up his cross, and to follow him. Like this is the path of discipleship. This is the path that ultimately yields our lives to Christ and says, I am dead to who I once was. I am dead to my former ambitions. I am dead to that old man of sin, and now I am alive to live and to follow you. Not saying any of us obtain perfection on that, but if we don't have that on our list, where are we headed, brothers and sisters? From the example of these 12 persecuted apostles, we'll see that they had resolved to do precisely this thing. They had resolved to let Jesus control their bucket, to put the things on their list that would control the future of their lives. So join me in Acts chapter 5, and we'll start in verse 27. Hopefully you'll see what I mean. If you're able, I'd invite you to stand with us that we might honor the reading of God's Word. Acts chapter 5, beginning verse 27. Here we go. When they had brought them, that is the apostles, they're bringing them before trial, they stood them before the council. The high priest questioned them, saying, We gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name. And yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teachings and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death by hanging him on a cross. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey Him. But when they heard this, they were cut to the quick and intended to kill them. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, respected by all the people, stood up in the council and gave orders to put the men outside for a short time. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you propose to do with these men. For some time ago, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a group of about 400 men joined up with him, but he was killed. And all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After this, Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census and drew away some after him. He too perished. And all those who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I say to you, stay away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or action is of men, it will be overthrown. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. Or else you may even be found fighting against God. They took his advice, and after calling the apostles in, they flogged them and ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and then released them. So they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. 
And every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Here ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. It's amazing to me the difference that we see in these apostles, these 12 individuals commissioned, sent by Christ uh, in the life that they live now compared to what they had done just months earlier, the sort of life that they'd lived then. When Jesus was arrested, these same 12 individuals scattered. They scurried away. They tucked their tails and they ran. And surely their minds thought something like what you and I probably would have thought. If we'd been in that same situation when Christ was being arrested, we probably would have done the same thing. We probably would have thought, you know, I can't put my life in danger now. Like, I've got a bucket list to finish off. I want to walk my daughter down the aisle. I want to see my grandkids as they grow up. I haven't gotten to experience life and vacation on the island of Cyprus. Like I have plans to start my own fishing business. We can imagine a variety of excuses that these disciples might have been making in this moment as they scurried away and tried to protect their own lives. When Jesus was arrested, they had different priorities. But now, on the other side of Calvary, on the other side of the empty tomb, they had encountered the risen Christ. And that made all the difference for them. So when the authorities commanded them not to teach in the name of Jesus, when they put them in prison and and stood them before the courts, when they became angry and ready to kill them, when they even scourged them and released them, these apostles did not waver. Jesus was filling their buckets. Their lists were now in his control. Their lives were now dedicated to him. And I just want us to consider for ourselves, is God the one filling our buckets Is he filling your bucket? Is he establishing and charting the course of your life? What would be different if that's the case? What would be different if God in Christ is in control of your bucket list? I see four differences in this passage that I think deserve our attention. Here's the first of those. If Jesus fills your bucket, you'll honor him above all else. Now, the council that the apostles are brought before in verse 27 is none other than the Sanhedrin. It is that Supreme Court that we talked about earlier. And the reason why these men have been brought before the court is that they will not stop speaking about Jesus. That's what the Supreme Court commanded them to do, by the way. Peter and John, two of them, have already stood before this court. This is the second trial we'll see before the Sanhedrin out of four that we'll find in the book of Acts. And here... We find that uh, they are not doing what they were commanded to do. After that first trial, Peter and John were commanded to no longer speak in this name. But the, ultimately, the command that had been given in that former instance to Peter and John has now been overruled by a higher command. God has commanded his apostles to go and make disciples. He's commanded his church, by the way, to go and make disciples. 
They were to begin in Jerusalem. In fact, last week we saw that though they were arrested and thrown in prison and locked from the outside, an angel of the Lord actually came as the doors were locked from the outside and released them, set them free. And as that angel did that, he gave them the Lord's command once again, the same command they'd received back at the Great Commission as Christ gave them his final words in Matthew 28 and Acts chapter 1. The angel said to them in chapter 5, verse 20 here in Acts, Go, stand, and speak to the people in the temple the whole message of this life. Well, now the high priests and the Sadducees and others who were bringing these apostles to trial on account of their jealousy over the successful ministry of these individuals, they've learned that the apostles have escaped. They've learned that they're no longer in the jail, but they bury their heads in the sand really regarding that truth because when they bring these individuals in front of them, there's nothing of the question of how did you get out of jail? Like they don't ask that question. That would be a pretty obvious question, I think, if I'm looking at these guys and they've suddenly snuck out of a guarded, locked prison cell. The reality is they buried their heads in the sand. They know that God is behind this endeavor and they are striving to protect their reputations more than they are striving to know and to obey the will of God. And they're worried about what these individuals preaching the gospel are doing, how that impacts their own position, their own authority. And so they basically accuse the apostles in these verses of three things. First, there's this matter of insubordination. As the high priest launches these charges in verse 28, he says, We gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name, and yet you filled Jerusalem with your teaching. Like, you're insubordinate. We commanded you. We're the authorities. You should be listening to us. Why are you still doing this thing? Not only did they not stop, they were actually having great success in teaching others about the name of Jesus. Therefore, the second charge that's evident in these verses is a charge of indoctrination. They're filling God's city, God's holy city, the city of Jerusalem. They're filling this city with a message that renders their ministry as intercessors for the people null and void. They're preaching a message that the sacrifices in this temple that they oversee are no longer necessary because the sacrifice of Jesus is now complete. And by the way, wouldn't it be wonderful if The town council of Madison were to call us in and were to say to us, you filled this town with the teaching of Jesus. Wouldn't that be fantastic? Like, should that not be an objective of ours as the body of Christ in this place? Well, the third charge, and this is the biggest issue that stokes the jealousy, stokes the guilt of the members of this court that they stand before, is that the the is really what the apostles were implying in what they were teaching, what they were preaching. They uh, call that out at the end of verse 28, the Sanhedrin does, and, and the high priest says, you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. That is, they're implying that these individuals in the court are guilty for condemning Jesus to the cross. They don't want the blood of Jesus attributed to them. They don't want to be considered guilty of this man's murder. Their conscience is plaguing them for decisions they've made in their past. In fact, if you were to turn back to Matthew's gospel and look at chapter 27 and verses 24 and 25, you would find that during the Roman portion of Jesus' trial, 
Pilate saw that he was accomplishing nothing in trying to convince this angry mob that Jesus was innocent, but rather that a riot was starting. And so we read, he took the water and washed his hands in front of the crowd saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to that yourselves. That's as they cried out over and over again, crucify, crucify. And then we read in verse 25, and all the people said, all the people, by the way, included the members of the Sanhedrin. Back in verse 20, Matthew revealed that it was the chief priests and the elders, the individuals who now make up this court that the apostles stand before. It was they who had incited the crowds, had persuaded them to put Jesus to death. And then at his trial, Matthew 27, 25, as Pilate said, I am innocent of this man's blood, they cried out with the masses, his blood shall be on us and on our children. That is, they had owned their sin in the past. They had said, let the murder of this guy be on us. Like, we'll take ownership of it. But now, every time the apostles mention the name of Jesus, it's like they're driving a nail into the Sanhedrin's souls. They can't stand to even hear the name. They won't even mention the name. In verse 28, they refuse to say it. Instead, they give the generic. We gave you orders not to continue teaching in this name. They won't even mention his name. They won't even say the name of Jesus. They can't say the name of Jesus because they know that they've wronged him. That name brings guilt for them. The best they can do is try to stop the nail from piercing their conscience by preventing that name from being spoken. And if they only knew the healing power in that name. Do you shudder at the sins of your past Are there things that you know you've done against God? As you know you've denied him, you know you've rejected him as the rightful ruler over your life at various points in your history. Do you cower away? Do you try to silence? you try not to think about the name that you've sinned against time and time again? Friends, there's healing power in the name of Jesus. You don't need to run from that name in shame. You need to run toward that name. Jesus hasn't come to condemn the world, but to save the world. So that sinners like you and me can have life in him. He knows that you've wronged him. And still, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So won't you come to him? Won't you trust in him? Once you find mercy and grace in abundant supply in that lovely, wonderful, marvelous, magnificent name of Jesus. I don't care what your wrongs in the past may be, this name has power for you. And these apostles, they'd resolve to honor Jesus above all else. They torn their own bucket list up. Jesus was now filling their buckets. They were more afraid of missing the fellowship of serving Jesus than they were of uh, being murdered by those who had executed Jesus. Therefore, when they're going about striving to live out the ambitions of their life, 
uh, as they're trying to check the items off of their bucket list before they ask the question, is this safe? They're asking the question, is this what Christ wants me to do? Because that trumps safety in their minds at this point. And we need this sort of priority setting in our own lives. We need to yield our buckets over to Christ's control such that no other authority trumps what Christ is calling us to do. Now listen, this doesn't mean that we set up a kingdom that's against the government or against the other authorities in our lives. God has established authorities in the realms in which we interact. Obeying authorities is a part of the Christian walk. God has designed the family. He's designed the church. He's designed the state. To be governed by authorities. And here the apostles find themselves at a conflict between what God is commanding them to do and what the state was commanding them to do. That's not our usual experience in the laws of our land. Although it is a growing experience, I think we should acknowledge. Still, over in 1 Peter 2.17, Peter himself would write, Honor the emperor. Jesus commanded the individuals uh, in his day to render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Paul would also later write to the church in Rome in Romans chapter 13 these words, every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from God and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves for rulers are not a cause for fear of good behavior but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God for your good. For if you do what is evil, be afraid. For it does not bear the sword for nothing. It is a minister of God. The state is a minister of God bearing the sword, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. So obeying the government is good in the normal circumstance. I don't pill out of the parking lot here today and, and hit 80 on 311 saying, I must obey God rather than men, okay? That's not the thrust of this message. That's not what we're out to do. God has told you to honor those in authority over you who have established laws that will keep you from hitting grandma while she's crossing the road and killing her, okay? But when there's a conflict between what God commands and what our government commands... When our government tries to redefine marriage uh, beyond what God has designed it to be. Or when the government tries to say that, that God's creation of gender as male and female is harmful. Or when our government tries to tell us that we are to forsake the gathering of ourselves together indefinitely. We must obey God rather than men. And there are times when a Christian cannot obey the state and should not obey the state. That doesn't mean that we establish a militia against every law that makes us uncomfortable, though. The apostles did not incite a, um, uh, they did not incite a mob to go and overtake the Capitol building. No, they kept true to their mission. They kept preaching the gospel. And there is a holy disobedience that honors God and allows Christ to fill our bucket list even when the authorities don't like it. And that may be the authorities in 
our town. It may be the authorities in our workplace. That may be the authorities in your home. Wives, God's word calls for you to submit to your husbands, calls for him to serve as the head of your home. But you know what you do if your husband tells you to stop praying? You obey God rather than men. We ultimately have this this objective. Over and over we see examples of this divine necessity to obey God rather than men. We see examples in God's word. We've encountered one of those already in the Hebrew midwives who were commanded by Egypt to kill those children who were born to the Israelites. And they chose to obey God rather than men. We'll see other examples as we continue on in the scripture readings that we'll pursue. Examples like Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego and Esther will encounter them as they ultimately encounter the cost of civil disobedience as being less than the cost of pursuing God and therefore acknowledging Him as the Lord of it all. They say we must obey God rather than men. It's worth the sacrifice, whatever it may be. You see, there was a higher court in Israel than the Sanhedrin. It was the supreme court of heaven. Let me say that another way. There is a higher court than the supreme court of the United States of America. And it is the supreme court of heaven. The God of heaven had sent his son into the world. He had sent his spirit into the world. Now he'd sent his servants into the world. And so the Sanhedrin had no authority to forbid them to preach in the name of Jesus. And nobody, hear me on this, nobody has the authority to forbid us from preaching the name of Jesus either. Governments themselves are not God. They can and often do overreach their authority. They make the demands that go beyond the authority invested in them and ultimately trump what has been established for them by God. But when an order from the government demands that we compromise the gospel or redefine the sin that the gospel came to address, we Christians must respectfully disobey human authority and remain faithful to the God who ultimately rules over all. In short, we must obey God rather than men. That's what Peter and the apostles so clearly say here in verse 29. You see, Jesus is filling their buckets. And so they've chosen to honor him above all else. In the Nuremberg trials that followed World War II, the Nazis stood charged with crimes against humanity and the echoes of their defense were so commonly the simple statement, I was merely following orders. The verdict that they found, however, was that they had a moral obligation to defy orders that, though legal, were clearly wrong. And how are we Christians, how are we going to establish what is clearly wrong? It shall not be through the legislature. Ultimately, we must hold God's revealed word, his commands for us as our ultimate authority. The God who is unchanging, the God who has revealed his will and his plan. The God who's revealed all that is sufficient for us to have life and eternity in him. This is the one we must obey. Are your ambitions like the apostles' ambitions, are they devoted to pursuing Christ? 
Is he filling your bucket? Or is there some other authority? Maybe it's a family member that you don't want to disappoint. Maybe it's a friend that you don't want to think that you're too extreme. Maybe it's an employer who's put ungodly requirements before you. Maybe it's someone else. Who's altering? Who's trumping your ambitions? If Jesus fills your bucket, you'll honor him above all else. That's the first thing that will be different if Jesus is in control of your bucket. Here's the second. If Jesus fills your bucket, you'll use every opportunity to share his good news. That's what the apostles do. Like, here we are. They are given a chance, and they are given the opportunity to defend themselves before this court that has the opportunity to take their lives. Like they've got a chance to defend themselves and to, to explain why they've been disobeying the authorities, why they've been teaching in the name of Jesus, and what do they do to defend themselves? They teach in the name of Jesus. Like They keep on doing the same thing they've been doing. They keep doing what they're on trial for. They tell of what he's done. And while the high priest can't even bring himself to the point of mentioning the name of Jesus, the apostles waste no time in making their message all about that wonderful name. They won't miss an opportunity to tell of the good news that's tied to that name. They jump at the chance to share the hope of the gospel with the members of this obviously lost and rebellious court. And so they proclaim here, starting in verse 30, the God of our fathers raised up, here's that name, Jesus whom you had put to death by hanging him on a cross. They don't shy away from calling out the sins who could, uh, the sins of those who, who they stand before who could essentially take their very lives from them. Why not? Well, if these individuals weren't convicted of their sins and there was no hope that they would turn to the Savior who could rescue them from God's wrath. And so they go on in verse 31. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Sure, there's condemnation in what they're saying, but you see the grace is dripping off this passage as well. Do you see the grace that's wrapped up in this name of Jesus? Oh, don't you love that name, brothers and sisters in Christ. He is the Prince of Heaven. He is the Prince of Peace, as Peter proclaims in the beer. He is the Son of God who's come to save the world. There is salvation in no one else other than this name. He grants you the opportunity to repent of your sins. He grants you the opportunity to be forgiven by God. Do you know Him? Have you entrusted your eternity to Him? Have you taken your opportunity? believe in this name I don't care how wicked the deeds of your past may be this gospel is still available to you just as it was to those who had literally nailed Christ to the cross and the disciples were captivated by the grace that's wrapped up in this message and so they used every opportunity that was afforded to them to share the good news of Jesus He was filling their buckets. He was driving them forward and proclaiming the hope that Jesus saves. And in general, we ought to expect Christians who have the Spirit of God, we ought to expect that they will bear witness to what Christ has done. That's what the apostles are doing. In fact, they say in verse 32, we are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to obey him. 
That's what we find here in verse 32. Have you placed your hope in Christ? Have you truly entrusted your life to him? If so, then you've got a mighty witness living within you. You have the Holy Spirit of God. Your body is his temple. So don't hem him up by your fears. Don't hem him up with your selfish desires. Unleash the witness within. Tell of the good news of Jesus. And you might say, well, that's, I don't think that's my gift. I don't think I'm able to witness. Well, God gives this witness to those who obey him according to this passage. Like, are you giving, witnessing to his grace a try even? Like, are you obeying? Have you obeyed his command for all Christians to go and make disciples? Like, don't expect the power if you're not rising up to the need of the hour. These apostles, they were consumed by Jesus. They took every opportunity to make Christ known. They knew the need of the hour, and they were rising up to meet it. And likewise, we must not waste our own Sanhedrin moments when they come. Who knows when our bucket will be kicked? And you, oh Christian, you have circles of influence in your life that no one else may be able to reach into. No one else may be able to touch. You've got Sanhedrin moments all around you in all likelihood. Will you let Christ fill your bucket by using every opportunity to share his good news? When you have someone's ear, even in the face of persecution and mockery and scorn, will you give them the truth? If Jesus fills your bucket, you'll use every opportunity to share his good news. That's the second thing that'll be different if Jesus is in control of your bucket list. Here's the third. If Jesus fills your bucket, you'll know you're on the right side of history. When the apostles refused to let anyone else write their bucket list and they refused to stop calling the members of the Sanhedrin out on their guilt, this crowd feeds up into this murderous frenzy in reality. Verse 33 says that when they heard this, they were cut to the quick and they intended to kill them. Like they've got murder on the minds. They've been overwhelmed with guilt since that afternoon when they cried out, crucify. And now every time they close their eyes in all likelihood, they see that blood-stained man who they knew was innocent. And these apostles, they won't let it go. In fact, God won't let them go. Their consciences are guilty. They know it's true. And when the truth pierces a human heart, an individual will respond by going in one of two directions. Either he repents or he rejects. And these 72 men here, they stand ready to reject God and silence his message that calls them to own up to and to turn away from their wrongs what do you do when the word of god confronts you in your life do you repent or do you reject to repent simply means to have a change of heart that results in a change of life the apostles hadn't gotten it wrong here in this moment but they certainly had gotten it wrong many times before Still, they had repented. Many in the city of Jerusalem had gotten wrong. Many had been there crying out, crucify, crucify. Many who were there on that day of Pentecost as the 3,000, as the 5,000 later were added to the church, many of them had been a part of that throng which condemned Christ to die. 
And yet when they were cut to the heart, they said, what shall we do, brothers? And they turned and they were saved. Maybe you know whether or not everybody else knows that your past is stained with sin. Will you repent? Will you cry out to Jesus saying, I know I'm a sinner. I know that I can't make it up on my own. I know that I need to be saved. And will you cry saying, Lord Jesus, I want what you're offering. I want the life that you're calling me to. I want to be forgiven. Will you turn and be saved? Or are you going to reject the truth? That seems to be where our society, that seems to be even where our world is headed. They don't like the message that calls us sin a sin. And so they redefine the message of sin as a crime. They define this message which would declare an individual to be sinful as hate speech. And many individuals, and especially the more progressive in terms of social issues in our society, like to speak of those who hold the ideas that have the most popular favor as being on the right side of history. As though somehow history is smart enough to make the moral choice. There's a supposition in that phrase, the right side of history, and it's contrast the wrong side of history as they would declare their opponents to be who are not with the modern times, who are not proceeding in the way that history is going. There's a supposition in that phrase that for someone to be on the wrong side of history means that history is heading in a morally right trajectory. The assumption is that things are improving with time rather than degrading. The problem with that supposition is that in human history, time and time again, we've known that not to be true. And for us to assume that the current winds of popular opinion get morally right that which has been wrong for all of history and that the cultural warriors of the present will be the ones who are forevermore embraced as the heroes of morality, that is a wishful at best and arrogant at worst presupposition. Are we really going to be on the wrong side of history if we let Christ fill our buckets with ambition here and now? Well, at least one individual in Israel's Supreme Court wants to take a wait-and-see sort of approach. His name is Gamaliel. He was a Pharisee. He was a very prominent and popular teacher in Israel. In fact, he's mentioned in several Jewish uh, pieces of literature in that time. He was so respected, as a matter of fact, that in the Jewish Mishnah, uh, we read that when Rabbi Gamaliel the Elder died, the glory of the law ceased, and purity and absence, abstinence died. You see, Gamaliel was well respected by the people of his time. And uh, we would probably know him best by one of his disciples who will be introduced to later in the book of Acts, who then becomes one of the most on fire individuals who's ever lived for the Lord, named Saul, also later called into apostolic ministry known as the Apostle Paul. Gamaliel was the one who was the rabbi of Saul. And he gives this guidance. He ultimately kind of points to a couple of examples here in history, one being the name of, of Thutis. And we don't know exactly for sure, but there are some historical references to a man named Thutis who claimed to have the power of Moses and therefore led a group of 400 individuals to this place uh, to uh, ultimately uh, 
as the Roman Empire is, is chasing after him, he takes a rod with him, and he takes him down by the Jordan River, and he says, don't worry, like when they come after us, I'll part these waters and we'll go through. Well, then Thutis, you know, he takes his rod and he strikes the water, and nothing happens. Well, he strikes his water again, and still nothing happens. And maybe a couple more times before, ultimately, the Roman soldiers are now at him, and Take his life and his followers scatter. So Thutis is one example that Gamaliel gives. Another is Judas of Galilee. That's a man who we do know was uh, described to be uh, a man who said that God's will was not for the Jews to pay taxes to the Roman Empire. Well, a lot of people are on board with that sort of idea, right? Hey, no taxes. Sounds like God's still in my favor. Let's go down that route. A lot of people find this to be a great idea, and so they follow him, and Judas of Galilee ultimately lost his life, and his followers were scattered as well. And Gamaliel kind of points to these examples, and he says, look, we've, we've known examples of individuals who claim to be moving for God in the past, and those movements were not sustained by God, and so they didn't last. And so he says, he's ultimately saying to the people here, let's, let's take a wait-and-see approach. And he says, in the present case, I say to you, stay away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or action is of men, it will be overthrown. In verse 39, but if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them or else you may even be found fighting against God. That is, Gamaliel like, even has this mentality of like later on, we're probably going to be found on the wrong side of history if this movement doesn't fizzle away. Like miracles that we see happening through these guys, like the change that we see happening in the lives of those who've been transformed by this name and this message, like that's an undeniable power. And if this movement is sustained, then we must know that this is of God. And so he says, like, if this persists and we oppose and we murder, then we're going to end up on the wrong side of history. And there's some truth to what Gamaliel says here. But it's not what individuals in our society would say would put us on the wrong side of history. No, Gamaliel knows that if you are opposed to the Almighty, if you are opposed to God, like if, if something other than the Almighty is driving you in a bucket list that opposes Him, then you are going to end up on the wrong side of history. And, you know, we can't always judge from short-term results whether an enterprise is of God or not. Like, we could see other things in our history of humanity that have thrived for much longer than a short generation. And so, this pragmatic measure is not really what we want to judge the success of a ministry by. What we want to judge success of a ministry by is conformity to the Word of God. Are individuals ultimately obeying what God has revealed Himself to be? present temporary failures or successes may not be final ones but who will determine the right side of history is it not he who spun the world into existence is it not he who controls and superintends that which we live in is it not his story history it is the almighty god who determines history And ultimately, if Jesus fills your bucket, if he's in control of your bucket list, then you're going to find yourself on the right side of history. 
That's the third thing that will be different if Jesus is in control of your bucket list. Here's the final one. If Jesus fills your bucket, you'll rejoice to be poured out for him. Not the way the world tends to think. But if Jesus fills your bucket, you'll rejoice to be poured out for him. These apostles, they certainly were. The rulers of the Sanhedrin, they're content to wait this thing out as Gamaliel had encouraged them to do. But they don't do so without a warning. And the warning comes in the form of a flogging. A flogging, by the way, was a customary punishment that was often used as a, a way of warning individuals who had committed an offense that the court did not want them to commit again. It consisted of 39 lashes, in fact. It's often referred to as the 40 less one. Paul talks about receiving the 40 less one multiple times in his ministry in one of his uh, epistles. Now, this, this, 40, uh, or this 40 minus one, this 39 lashes, was based on the provision of 40 stripes to be given in Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 3. And there God's word ultimately says that you would punish an offender in this way, but to ensure you didn't go over 40, lest you be guilty of ultimately not loving your neighbor, your brother, as you ought to. And so to prevent from going over, the Jews added that one gracious lash that they would not swing out, and they would hit an individual with 39. In fact, this cruel punishment would be uh, carried out as an individual would bear his or her chest, uh, would go to a kneeling position, and then would be beaten with a, a tripled strap of calf hide across both the, the chest and the back. Two strikes on the back for every strike on the chest, and men were known to have even died from that ordeal, although normally it would not be a punishment that would result in death. It was still not a light punishment. It was most awful, just a shameful sort of warning, but it was a very painful warning. It was discipline to discourage wrongdoing. And that's what these disciples faced. That's what they experienced. That's what they were given in the wake of this trial. And still, they went away not sad, not crying, not embarrassed, not ashamed. They went away rejoicing because they had... Look, look, it wasn't that they were rejoicing because they'd gotten out of prison. Like, I think that would be a good reason that we might think they might rejoice. They weren't rejoicing because they'd made it out of this trial alive and weren't executed. They weren't rejoicing because they had met an angel. They weren't rejoicing because they had stumped the Sanhedrin. They were rejoicing because they had been found worthy to suffer shame for the name of Jesus. And they went on and they went about their mission as day after day they were found teaching and preaching the hope of the gospel. Let me just say, like, it's hard for us sometimes to think of being counted valuable to suffer for something. But that's what these disciples found their value in. I think they discovered that all of our righteousness is but filthy rags, and yet Christ redeemed us anyways. And how did he redeem us? He redeemed us through his suffering. 
He redeemed us through what we have the opportunity to associate ourselves with when we pursue him, when we hand our bucket list over to him, when he takes control of our lives. We have the opportunity to suffer, the privilege to suffer. We're counted worthy to suffer. What an amazing thing that we could be a part of God's road crew. Like we could be with the Almighty in serving him on the road. Like this is our calling. This is our opportunity. And the true value, the true worthiness of a nobody like Jeremy Parker is found in the opportunity to be a part of the Almighty's ministry. These disciples knew that. Just as so many individuals from the dawn of Christianity to those who are facing persecution in China and among those who are are, uh, with ISIS, just as those who are in Sudan now are being persecuted for the cause of Christ, they know the joy of those sufferings. They know the worthiness of being counted as one who could suffer for Christ. Richard Richard Wormbrand is an evangelical pastor and founder from yesteryear who founded the Voice of the Martyrs organization. And he spent 10 years in a Romanian prison controlled by communist authorities who would not tolerate his underground ministry to Christians in need. During his imprisonment, his tormentors ripped chunks of his flesh out of him he had the scars to prove it scars as a matter of fact that he revealed to the u.s senate by removing his shirt as he testified to these horrors in 1966 while in prison wormbrand was sentenced to solitary confinement and for weeks or even months on end no one would even speak to him in his tiny cell But amazingly, during all uh, of that, there were these times when Wormbrand would would confess that he was overcome with joy. In a cell, by himself, being abused, he was overcome by joy. He would actually stand up in his weakened state and he would dance around his cell, confident that the angels of heaven were dancing with him. And when he was released from prison unexpectedly, Wormbrand, he went home to his wife and they prayed, they fasted as a memorial to the joy that he had experienced in prison, asking God for the same kind of joy outside the prison as he had experienced in it. There is joy in suffering for Christ. There is joy in in the fellowship of knowing that the sufferings I face come nowhere close to what Christ faced on my behalf. And when I get to heaven, when I get the opportunity to meet him face to face, any suffering that I've undergone is just going to sweeten that fellowship that we share with one another Do you believe the promises of Psalm 23? Do you believe the promises that say, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life? Do you believe the promises that say, yeah, though I'll walk through the valley of the shadow of death, thou art with me, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Because that's what we sing about when we sing another in the fire. That in the suffering, in the fire, just as uh, the... Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were were placed in that fiery furnace. And Nebuchadnezzar looked in and saw there's another one who's in there moving around with them. And he looks like a son of man. Just as Daniel in the lion's den found that 
The angel of the Lord came and shut the lion's mouth. Just as these apostles stood before the Sanhedrin, God was with them in that moment. When Jesus commands us to go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, he says, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And there's fellowship in this suffering. When we find ourselves in the midst of God's will, God comes and meets us and supplies every need for us. And we experience joy. And so, I ask you, who's filling your bucket? Who's designing your bucket list? If Jesus fills your bucket, you'll rejoice to be poured out for him. What's on your bucket list? Who holds your bucket? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the example of those who've gone before us, who knew Christ in a very visible and physical sort of way, who had walked with him on this earth, who had found him to be faithful, and who had a transformation of life, Lord, that we can explain as nothing less than resigning to give all of our ambitions, all of our hopes, all of our dreams over to your control in Christ. So Father, we just pray that you'd help us to know the grace that they had found. You'd help us to realize the the joy of these sufferings. You'd help us to realize the importance of this call that we, oh Lord, might yield our bucket list, that we might Yield our lives, yield our ambitions, yield the control of who we are and who we want to be and what we're striving to do, that we would yield these things into your control because you are worthy of it all. Lord, don't let us miss that joy. And so, Father, I just pray that you'd open our eyes, open our hearts, that we might yield all that we are, all that we have, to the one who is worthy of it all and who grants us that which can never be taken away. We praise you in the mighty name of Jesus and pray that you guide us as we live life for him. Amen. Well, thank you all for coming today and if there is any guidance that we can provide as a church, any decision that you're contemplating, that you're weighing, maybe there's an authority that you're battling with in your life and you just want a little guidance. You want someone to help you through that. Maybe there's a decision you have made that you just want to rejoice in. You want the church to know about. Reach out to us. Let us know. You've got some mechanisms here on the, on the website for those of you who are online and those of you who are here in person. Like, uh, obviously, not an unapproachable sort of guy. Okay, so come and I'd uh, be happy to walk with you and share in the joys of what Christ is doing in both of our lives. All right? God bless you. Hope you have a good remainder.